Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought-provoking interviews with world-leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake here from Fulfilled. Today I'll be talking acquisition and fundraising strategy with the former Supporter Acquisitions Manager from Amnesty International Australia, Jeremy Bennett. Jeremy, welcome. Thanks, mate. Good so, to be here. Yeah, so since leaving Amnesty, you've now started your own consultancy, Bigfoot Fundraising. That's right. How's it all gone? Really good, yeah. So we're about uh, seven, eight months in now. So still in like the early stages, but um, working with some really great charities, doing a lot of uh, like digital fundraising work mainly, um, some strategy work, and yeah, had some early wins on the board. and growing and learning every day. So I'm pretty pleased. Yeah, great. So where did it all begin with you and fundraising? What were you doing and when did it all start? Sure, yeah, well fundraising, I mean, I might even take a step back before I got into fundraising. For me, the journey started um, when I got into marketing. So I studied business and marketing at university. Um, I didn't know fundraising back then was a industry and I didn't really feel like you know at that stage in my life um, I wanted to you know just to get into marketing and I did um, but for me how I got into fundraising after about three four years working for Telstra as a commercial marketer I kind of got the itch that I wanted to do something else and help people but I never knew quite how I was going to do that so I um, lot you know I Maybe I won't bore you with the whole journey, but long story short, I then realized that I could, I could, um, you know, uh, work for a social cause and do and, and help people and still be a marketer. And, you know, the way to do that was to become a fundraiser. So it was kind of a light bulb moment when I, uh, on my journeys from Australia, where I realized that I wanted to be a fundraiser and had my first um, fundraising job in the UK. Yeah, great. So how did you get that first role and who was it with? Yeah, so it was with um, Shelter. So they're a pretty large homeless and housing charity in London and the UK. Um, How I got it really was just, as I said, once I decided that I wanted to become a fundraiser, Mm. I was like a dog on a bone with really trying to get work. So I think first I um, did a bit of volunteer work for a a, um, communications uh, agency that works with charities and that kind of got me some like fundraising experience but I really just went through a load of interviews um, and yeah when I saw this role going at Shelter it really mirrored a lot of the work that I had done at Telstra in terms of managing direct marketing campaigns and you know all their kind of um, intricacies of that and I thought look this you know besides the what we're trying to market or fundraise everything else looked pretty similar so i was lucky to kind of you know play on those transferable skills and get my kind of first foot in the door yeah great so in that first role that you had what were some things that you learned early on going into the fundraising profession yeah i guess for me um the first few things coming from being a commercial marketer to a fundraiser was just that that obvious difference of you're not marketing a product and it's probably a bit less based on you know selling or marketing the benefits and almost the features you're really talking about the emotional connection to a cause to a story to a person um so i think the difference was really yeah just the just the framing of a message it was much more like emotional storytelling but when it comes to like the tactics and the channels and all that kind of stuff, it's very similar. So I think I could draw on that experience. So since returning to Australia, you took up a role with the World Animal Protection as the acquisitions manager. Um, How were you able to have an impact in those early stages? Yeah, um, I think initially, um, initially I would say they weren't doing that much digital fundraising. So I know um, in, in my time there, one of the earlier things I did was really start to 
um, bolster that program, put more investment in there, um, you know, work, work with some really great agencies at the time to really grow that program. Um, I think the other, the other area um, I know that I really worked a lot on taking my UK experience where I did a lot of above the line integrated campaigns like DRTV and press and offline and SMS and things like that. I brought a lot of that experience to um, you know WAP. Um, so yeah, we were able to launch some really successful uh, integrated campaigns. What stands out as the most successful campaign you had there? Yeah, it was probably this, uh, it was called Protect This Bear. So one of the campaigns and the areas that they worked on was around ending the um, industry that exploits bears. So for their bile, uh, in some countries in Asia, it's just seen as a, as a medicine to cure all things. So we, we did this, uh, we did this, in, uh, we did this integrated campaign where we uh, produced a DRTV ad, a lot of online content. Uh, we built uh, a, um, a micro site, you know, came up with all the email supporter journey, you know, comms, uh, press ads, DRT, uh, uh, TV advertorials, um, whole range of things. Um, and that was, yeah, I think, I think, you know, I think it smashed the budgets. I think we raised about a quarter of a million in about maybe six months. And it's, it, it, um, yeah, it really set them up for, I know, a, a form of fundraising that I know they're still doing now. So, so moving on from WAP, um, you took up a role, as we said in the introduction, with Amnesty International Australia as the acquisitions yep. manager. So how did you see this as an opportunity? Yeah, look, for me, first and foremost, uh, Amnesty was always a charity and a brand that I absolutely loved. Um, when I lived in the UK, one of my really good friends was the innovation manager there. So I felt like I had a direct feed to all the really cool stuff and, and you know, um, yeah, all the cool work that they that they were doing. So, and I just always love them as a brand, their cause, you know, fighting for human rights and whatnot. Um, so for me, for me, just having the opportunity to work for them was just a no-brainer. And how did you find um, donors' reactions compared to, say, where you came from? How were they different? You know, they're probably different. Um, animal, animal supporters, if it's animal rights or animal welfare, uh, are super passionate. So they were similar in the sense that you get really passionate supporters because you're talking about two really important things, you know, humans being you know denied their human rights and persecuted and killed like some really strong stuff and animals kind of having the same things done to them and you know you get people that are outraged and you know have anger and they are so passionate so i i saw similarities uh in that so i saw that you know you had a very passionate supporter base i guess the difference with amnesty they Human rights is very broad. So there was all, you had like supporters that were really into one type of human rights. Maybe it's, it's ending the death penalty, but then you had some that really weren't agreeing with us on our views for say uh, refugees or something like that. So I probably saw a very divided, there's like divided supporter base in some to some extent, whereas my past role, the supporters were probably overall just like super passionate. Mm. And what do you think Amnesty does so well that other NGOs don't? Look, I think being a really big organization, you can draw from all your other um, offices around the world. So they probably just have that experience of being around for so long. Um, you know, I think they attract really good talent. So at the time, you know, there was just obviously some really good people working there. So they, you know, and then they have the resources. I think within their brand, they like to be bold and they like to be somewhat of like an agitator to some extent. So I think what they probably allowed to do uh, differently than other charities is be a bit out there in some of their campaigns. So provoke a response. And I think when you talk about human rights, you, you have to make, you know, sometimes you're going to annoy the government or the company that you're targeting. So I think their work can be a bit confrontational at times and a bit polarizing, which I personally liked. Um, I think if I were to work for a charity, maybe that was very conservative um, and you had to really watch what you're saying all the time, I probably would find it a bit hard, uh, but yeah. 
And um, you took, you mentioned the international offices having an influence on each other. Yeah. Were you able to leverage off the international offices for your own personal development? Uh, yes, actually. I mean, I was very lucky in probably my, my last six months at Amnesty. Uh, before I left, I, I was sent over to Taiwan to basically set up the digital fundraising program. So I went in there to write a strategy. I was there for about two months. And so, yes, I was able to really leverage that opportunity of, you know, having these different offices and basically take all the learnings of my time in Amnesty Australia and really and really take that to a market that was emerging that probably was a few, you know, a few years behind Australia and really just fast track their learning and development. So personally, actually, that was an amazing experience living in a really different culture, like very different to my time in London. This was an Asian culture. Um, Taiwan is just an amazing place. Uh, and um, yeah, just, just to be able to really um, uh, influence what they were going to do in terms of digital um, very strongly was just something that, you know, brought, brought me a lot of joy. And it probably is the reason why I'm, I started my own business. I think it gave me the final push to say that, you know, this consulting kind of uh, approach is something that actually I'm not bad at and I actually really, really enjoy it. So I think going back to my old job after that, I, I, I then found it actually a bit hard and then I knew it was time for me to make the, like the jump. Mm. So when you looked at what was happening in Taiwan with Amnesty, what were some key areas that you felt they weren't doing at the time and how did you manage to go in and fix that? Um, well, as I said, I was there to really set up digital fundraising so they weren't doing that at all. Um, so it was almost a bit of a blank slate, but they had such a, um, you know, they have such a, a passionate team. Uh, they were really open to ideas. So for me, it was really just setting up like, you know, from uh, fundraising emails to uh, you know, Facebook advertising to fixing their landing page and donate page. So all the kind of key elements of a fundraising program you know integrating with, with the campaigns team and looking at you know two-step uh, acquisition and integrating with phone and things like that so it was a really good opportunity yeah just to really um, leverage what we were doing in Australia and really just in other sections as well yeah I find this quite interesting because there'll be many um, NGOs charities out there with international offices <laughs> and there's always ones performing better than the others yeah um, do you think for um, NGOs say that are performing better in Australia, they should look to the international offices and see how they can make an impact there? Totally. I mean, I, I think, look, uh, I think Amnesty, in, like in, in my time there, there could have been a lot more sharing of information. And I think these are secondments and things like that. Obviously, if you can make it work, I think it's really beneficial for both parties. I think it's a really good development opportunity for people. Um, and you know, with like everything online now, there's you know, with, with different, uh, you know, Slack and Facebook Workplace and things like that. It's very easy to, to to share this information online, and and I think as well, like if you're a charity like that, you know, you double up on so many costs. Where if you were to truly integrate and have an appeal that could work across many countries for those bigger charities uh, I still think it's very siloed but um, I think that's something that yeah these bigger charities should really focus on. Um, so what stands out in your time at Amnesty as your most successful campaign and how did you play a part in that success? Yeah um, I think one that really jumps out to mind uh, that was very successful um, and was just a blast to be part of was Early on, when um, I came on board, I, I, I um, worked on setting up digital acquisition, uh, like a as a channel, and uh, we were working on a campaign around um, Syria, around the the uh, war that 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 was going on there to expose like all the human rights issues, and we worked. Um, on a campaign where we produced a video uh, that was really powerful that became viral. I think it was viewed over 20 million times and one of the most successful Amnesty videos ever. And you know, we had, we had a whole integrated campaign, mainly digital campaign around it. And um, yeah, it was just really pleasing to see the reaction, see how well it did. Um, it took us all by surprise. Like we 
in hindsight, if I could do it again, I would have been a lot more prepared and I think we could have raised a lot more money. But in saying that, um, that um, Aleppo campaign was really successful and it was just really fun to be part of. Yeah, it seems to be the question, how can I make my video go viral? Oh. What goes into it? Uh, uh, look, I'm not an expert on this. I can't, yeah. really, I, I can't really say, but I guess what made this video do well was it, it really starts with just a really good concept and idea and story. Like this was a really powerful message where it was really like a comparison between uh, an, an Australian life, like a morning of an average Australian family versus what's going on in Syria and Aleppo where, you know, just the simplest thing of going out to get milk could, could mean that, you know, you might not come back or something like that. And it was really powerfully done. It was really shot well. Um, and so I think the content, what you put out there has, has to be good. Like you can't, you can't skimp on that. Um, doesn't have to be super flash. You know, I think most viral content is like super like, you know, user generated on the phone, it's done on an iPhone, like some of it. Um, but I think, yeah, I think you just gotta, you just gotta connect. I think it just comes back to having something that like stops people scrolling on their phone and actually watch it. And I think this has really got people's attention. And I think the other thing as well is it came, we launched it at a time when this was all over the media. So that that's something that, you know, if you want something to go viral, like you've either got, it has to be relevant to the audience or it has to be part of something that's being talked about. Yeah, and it seems, a difficult task when your projects are so far away. I mean, obviously, as you say, if it's in mainstream media, it's easy to connect. But yeah. what about those <clears throat> stories that just seem so foreign to us? I mean, the work around Saudi Arabia or things like that. How do you connect that with everyday Australians? Yeah, I mean, look, I think you just got to break it down at the end of the day. So if it's about, you know, people say, then people were all inherently very much the same. Uh, needs and basic wants are all the same. So it's very much trying to um, just break it down to the one person maybe, you know, and, and show that we're the same. Um, I, you know, I know with my time in Amnesty, there was very much that, you know, the cases and the stories we would fundraise on or campaign on, often it, it was a story that got people on board, not so much the big stats and all the things, you know, of course you have to talk about how you're gonna make a difference if you support and what Amnesty is doing, all the charity is doing. But really, I think if you don't have a good story, you don't have a good like good need and a simple solution, um, they're really the basic components. Yeah, great. And when you reflect on your time at Amnesty, what stands out as a memorable moment that you had to learn something the hard way? Oh, I mean, there was a lot. There was a few, you know. It was a, it was a, it was a fast-paced, tough job, you know, with a lot going on all the time. God, I mean, I would say, look, um, I had to learn the hard way. You know, something that was a challenge was there was times where we were for a long time we were in a transition of of our supporter database, and in that transition. Uh, a lot of what we did was very much uh, labor-intensive workarounds. It put a real big strain on myself and the team. So I think learning, I think a learning is really like as a charity, big or small, you really got to make sure your database is really strong because data is seriously the key to like all your fundraising campaigns. And if you've got good data and it's easy to get insights and it's easy to get that information and then fundraise from whether that's send the data to a telephone agency or use that data to set up ads or whatever it is, that's really, really key. So I probably learned the hard way at when we were in a transition period uh, of how hard things can be when, when your database is not, you know, super effective, yeah. And uh, Amnesty seems like an organization that isn't afraid to innovate and put itself out there and really push the boundaries. Um, can you think of a time that you innovated, but it was a risk, but it did pay off. Yeah, um, yeah, one one kind of campaign or one, one thing that, that we did, um, we trialed, so my role at Amnesty, I looked after, yeah, 
acquisition and face-to-face fundraising is a really big part of that as as it is for most charities with a big you know um, acquisition team or whatnot um so we were trialing like virtual reality on the street and looking at like other ways to be able to stop people on the street and give them a deeper engagement um so we kind of took the lead from our UK counterparts, like our team over in the UK, and we kind of adapted what they did. Um, Yeah, I think we were probably one of the first charities in Australia to do that. Um, And, you know, it was a lot of work. When when, when you're working with external agencies that you probably don't have as much uh, control over, like how the team then, you know, uses the headset and whatnot, it it was a very labor-intensive project to really uh, test it like methodically and and like learn and refine it um, but overall I thought it was you know we had so many learnings from that um, but yeah you know it was it was a tough one and you mentioned face-to-face um, how important is face-to-face in today's fundraising space super important look uh, I mean you when you boil down what face-to-face is is two people like us just having a chat right and I think that's the essence of all fundraising is the communication you know it, it is the one-to-one is the charity trying to you know um, yeah it's just trying to talk to people in a very simple engaging way and you can't really beat that like a face-to-face interaction you know we try and replicate that online we obviously try and replicate that in many different ways so face-to-face from that point of view is always going to be around um, but you know when it comes to the channel and how it's doing now like it's obviously um, probably in a challenging phase now because um, it's probably quite saturated and um, sometimes you know in terms of other channels people will will attract at a higher rate and so trying to keep people engaged can be quite hard but from a it's still a very very effective form of fundraising it's still a way that charities can get their message out there to many people um so i think now the focus of face-to-face really has to be on having really like better conversations really looking at um talking to people who are more most likely to give and to keep giving so maybe older people um using things like well vr was just one example but you know looking at other engaging ways to um, get people's attention like ex- experiential marketing and having you know making it like a bit of an event or looking at um, you know events and other ways to incorporate fundraising so I think the traditional model of face-to-face and how we have done it for the last 15 years in Australia is slightly changing but yeah, I think it's super important and it's going to be around for a long time. So you've had a lot of experience and success <coughs> with acquisition. I mean, what goes into planning a successful acquisition strategy? Yeah, I mean, uh, the first thing is really uh, like having a plan and a strategy, as you said. So really looking at, you know, why we want to do something. I think this, you know, with acquisition, it's all, it's always the excitement of this endless possibility of new channels and these new things to do it's very much uh, a process of sometimes like reining it back and saying like where can we get you know most bang for our buck um who are the type of people that we need to target you know um and you know depend you know how much spend do we have all these different things you know um and then working out what the right approach is you know look i would say for me, you know, spending a lot of time on the acquisition front, uh, I think it's really important to get the right donors on board, ones that are going to stick around and be engaged. So I think a good acquisition campaign, back to my point on data, is really understanding who you're trying to target because you can you can get a whole lot of people and the wrong people who really were never going to stick around and donate. Um, and it's really about looking at you know lifetime value things like that and really um, building a campaign around that but i think acquisition as well um, that first message when you're trying to talk to someone who might might not know the cause or the charity i think acquisition having a really strong proposition and a really strong content is really key um, i think a lot of times with acquisition versus maybe some other types of fundraising uh, charities try and take 
just messaging that they have that might work for retention or for other channels and just plonk it in for acquisition. Acquisition is its very own nuance on like it's much shorter and you sometimes have to really get someone's attention really quick and you can't go into too much detail whereas when you have someone on board you can then broaden out the messaging. So I think charities that really get acquisition are really good at crafting the proposition on the front end. Yeah. So, I mean, there we, I see it all the time. Charities are still going out there just asking for a small donation right from the get-go. Do you think it's time to rethink that in those days past now? And it's more about the two-step? Um, look, I would just say, what are the numbers saying? If the number, f- if the metrics and the return on investment for that example you gave are good and it's working, don't stop, you know? I think with acquisition, it's often like, or with any fundraising, um, you really look at, is it profitable? Is it working? If it is, well, let's, let's spend more in there. Let's dial it up. If it's not, let's move, you know, let's invest in, you know, you're always trying to make sure you're putting your resources in the right area. So I would say in general, you can't have a blanket. It's not just one or the other. It's very dependent on the charity. It's dependent on, you know, uh, how much resource they have, their expertise, you know, their message, you know, how much, brand awareness of the charity. So maybe for someone with a small charity who's fairly new, yes, maybe a two-step approach is very much needed. Maybe they really need to explain who their cause is, you know, explain their cause more. But maybe for a charity that has really strong brand recognition, and let's say there's a crisis, like you're a Red Cross, right? And there's a crisis going on, go for the direct ask. I would say you don't want to keep warming them up. You know, you, you've already got them super engaged. So it really depends what's going on, yeah. Yeah, great. And what's digital's role in the acquisition strategy? I mean, how is that different to traditional acquisition channels? Sorry. Yeah, I think digital is becoming more, more, more and more important. Um, you know, tr- traditional channels, again, I don't see it as this like, digital versus others, it's really all, when you break it down to someone, like a donor, like you or me, right? We're not, we don't just spend all our time online, we're offline as well, we're reading emails, we're opening mail, we're answering phones, you know, calls, we're seeing ads outside, we're doing all these things. So I think uh, digital is, you know, a, a very important part in um, reaching people where they are because more people are spending more time online. Therefore, we should spend more, um, you know, budget trying to reach them online. But it, it's it's not really a standalone. For, for me, digital should be integrated with, with every part of a charity and all their fundraising campaigns. You know, it should be mixed in with offline, you know. DM supporters should also be getting emails and also Facebook ads and, you know, um, you know, older segments can also, you can engage them online, but then also you want to maybe call them and send them mail packs as well. Like it's, it's very much just something that should be integrated with everything else. And what tools and systems do you find are very important for digital acquisition? Yeah, I mean, Back to back to data, uh, like your database uh, can be a really good first place. So, um, like your database in terms of like your email list is super important. I would say your email supporter base is something that you should be growing and cultivating, and where uh, you know I would say is the backbone of. Uh, a digital program so so your analytics around that is really important um, the other thing in terms of measuring digital is your website super important so Google Analytics and or whatever analytics you have on your website seeing you know um, most people that go to a landing page you know 98% of them in general won't give so like understanding why people are going to your website, why they're donating or not donating is super important. I think uh, much more emphasis needs to be on charities' websites. Uh, I think the other, you know, other tools that are really important uh, for digital is just your social media channels and the analytics and insights that come from that, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. So just really understanding, yeah, you know, uh, are your posts engaging and who your, audi- who, who your audience is and things like that um, 
can really help yeah and how should you segment your audiences i mean you know i think standard ways are low medium high are there other ways to tailor uh, tailor messaging to specific um, yeah yeah i mean so that's obviously you know rfm and things like that's based on on when you gave and how much and things like that um and how often so that's a great way that's one way uh there's other ways could be based on behavior as well like if you've if you've opened a bunch of emails or if you've not opened an email or if you've done certain things or if you've um you know you know yeah just you know behavior based um actions and then there's also more deeper i think like value based so you could segment your database based on what people care about in terms of the theme you know like the issues or the cause or campaigns you know a charity might like like amnesty example have different different types of campaigns so you might segment your database on what they actually want to hear about that's another way or you could segment based on lifestyle stages and things like that i i know in the commercial world that's how they segment a lot of their databases based on on values and things like that yeah i mean there'll be probably smaller charities out there going oh this just seems way too hard but how difficult is it to start segmenting like that and what tools should they use to begin doing that uh oh look i would just always start really simple and you know look at what's going to have the biggest impact but um you know i mean what what tools oh i mean it really depends what database they're using but just have a good crm you know, I know, you know, common ones in the industry, you know, Blackboard or Salesforce, or if you're really small, you know, there's, you know, you can even use like MailChimp or something like that, or just, you know, there's other smaller ones. It doesn't have to be super complex. I think just at the end of the day, you just want to at least get the basics right. Um, you know, being able to thank someone properly, being able to recognize how much they gave and when they gave, and being able to just personalize as much as you can you know if you can just do those things right like that's you know that's really good so i i would just focus on that if you're a bigger charity maybe some of the things i said before you know segmenting on on these on more values and things like that maybe that's something you you can look at yeah so making it personalized like what's some examples of that yeah i mean uh like saying someone's you know name or maybe they have a nickname that they want to be called but you know you know recognizing by someone's name is one thing you know uh recognizing past action so if they've if they've given to an appeal before say it's a dm pack or an email you know recognizing that they gave to last year's appeal and now you're asking for them to give again and recognizing obviously how much they gave and or um is really so then you can maybe ask them to just give a little bit more than last time so it's really personalized and even down to you know if you started to get complex even you know down like to images and things like that could could be based on on um yeah it could be really based on info that you know that they might resonate with cool so just moving a bit away from acquisition now um what have you found to be successful when acquiring regular givers yeah um i think one of the most important things that might get overlooked to some extent is uh, is really looking at trying to go for older donors like you know it's no secret that the younger you are if you sign up to become a regular donor you're gonna you're, you're gonna you know leave or retreat at a higher rate than someone who's older like it's like a fact you know universal fact pretty much <laughs> So I think what's successful with a good regular giving program is again back to the data, really understanding. So you know who are your best regular donors, right? What do they look like? Where do they live? Where do they? What do they consume in terms of their media? What do they like? Like build a persona and then go and find them. So like I think that's really key. So really understanding who you're trying to target. Um, a regular giving program, I think if you know if you're a charity, I think it's a real backbone of your individual giving program. So trying to find channels where you can get a bit of scale. So you're not doing all this work just for five regular donors, you know. So face to face is really good for that because you can get you can you can get you know heaps heaps of people out there. But back to what we mentioned before, the two steps. So getting a whole load of people online to take a a kind of lower barrier to entry action whether that's 
sign up for their email or get updates or get a free booklet or sign a petition or whatever it is. Um, once you have that data, once you've started the relationship, you can then you can then turn to the more traditional channels like telephone and you can start to have that one-on-one conversation to convert them. Yeah, great. And can you remember a time that you and your team went over and beyond in nurturing donors? Um, yeah, yeah, we, um, I, was, I mean, it was a few times. I mean, one that, one that springs to mind um, from when I worked in the charity side, so when I was at Amnesty, uh, is a recent example, we set up this program called Surprise and Delight. Um, I actually copied that name for uh, this work I did when I worked at Telstra, where we basically just wanted to surprise and delight our regular donors, the ones that have come through face to face. Uh, because we knew that you know it's harder to keep them engaged and to keep them giving so we we sent them um, digital postcards that were like personalized from from someone that, that they had helped release from jail you know through their donation so we really tried to link a really strong case to their money and really show why we needed their ongoing uh, support you know we, we, we had like SMSs to go with that um, uh, I think we had some phone calls as well. So we, you know, so we really put a lot of uh, resource and effort into into just making them like surprising them with this, you know, kind of nurture campaign. And you know, it did really well when we looked at the results. Those that got those communications stayed around and gave a lot more money. So yeah, it's yeah, great. Great. Um, right back to the early stages. Say it's coming up to uh, tax appeal time and. What goes into the planning phase of a really successful fundraising strategy? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, maybe I'll draw on some work that I've been doing for Bigfoot. So we, we, it's now just after taxes, as you know. So we've been working on some online tax campaigns. And I think, I think it really starts with working collaboratively with the charity and really understanding, again, what's worked in the past and what hasn't worked. I think... In this industry, like any industry, resource is finite. So you don't always want to reinvent the wheel. So you want to get right down to what's worked, why it hasn't. Um, I think planning for any campaign, especially like tax, is um, again back back to some of the basics. Is having a really compelling um, campaign or theme. Um, there's tactics that work really well, like uh, match giving is something that now a lot, a lot of charities are doing around tax or Christmas and, and for a, um, a charity that I've been working with, a children's hospital charity, we had a really s- successful tax campaign where we had a match giving offer, there was urgency, we really uh, warmed people up in the coming months to basically prime them to donate. We made sure that you know the website and the landing page was really, really strong. You know, I think integrating all your channels around tax. So from a charity point of view, I think around tax time, fundraising should be the priority, you know? So that means having the prime real estate on your website. That means, you know, having a priority in the emails that are going out to the supporters and donors. So all these things are really important around tax because that is when you're gonna get your best bang for buck. That's when people literally are looking I want to donate, who should I donate to? So they're in that frame of mind and you want to be the one that's just, you know, top of mind and you want to be there, you know, to basically make that a really easy process. So I think it's also about just making making it easy. So, you know, do, do you have a really long uh, donation page with unnecessary steps and unnecessary data fields, you know, cut it out, you know? Do you have your best content? Are you going out with your strongest appeal of the year? You know, don't save any, don't save a strong one for later. You know, go out with your really, really strong content. Mm. And what have you found? Um, just one channel um, has bought an, a nice small return for a minimum, a minimal amount of time that you've invested into it. You know, I would say. If, yeah, I would say if you want to get the most bang for your buck and you want to get, you know, a good return for not much resource, focus on uh, engaging and upgrading the, your existing supporters. So, so moving away from acquisition now, 
look at your existing supporter base you know you know why you know and i'm sure most charities they they have a say they have a supporter base with you know this many supporters and only probably a fraction of them are donating so it would be about let's send them really engaging communications to to try and move them from being someone who has a loose affiliation who just gets their emails or gets their comms or whatever to someone who's a passionate donor so that's where you're going to get um, you know, so it could be through like an email campaign, take your strongest video, your strongest campaign, you know, maybe it's really understanding why they haven't, you know, maybe you could look at data and say, why hasn't this bunch of this cohort of people, um, they haven't, you know, done anything for a while, we're going to really try and, you know, treat them well, or it's about, you know, making sure that you're contacting and upgrading. So like a telephone upgrade campaign would be an excellent area to to really get you know bang for buck and then the other area i would say is really identifying those those middle or major donors or those people that like you know you think that you can have like a real personal connection with i think that's where you're going to get obviously a really good return on investment we mentioned it earlier but mobile marketing how important is it and why it's important but uh, it's something that I would think because when you get a message on your mobile, it's so direct, like, you know, mobile texts are usually, you know, uh, a place where only your texts, you know, your, your, your friends or your mom and dad use now, right? So you've got to be careful because if you're bombarding people with um, SMSs, you know, they're, they're probably going to get, you know, if you do it too much, they might get annoyed, but it's super important. I think it works well in conjunction with other communications. So say you've got a email appeal going out um, and maybe you've got, you know, it's right near tax time or you've got this uh, urgent appeal. Sending an SMS um, around your appeal can really boost, you know, your other communication so maybe you'll get people to read that dm that you sent or it'll get people to open that email or they might just respond straight from the text so yeah i think it's something that is it's not really just a standalone i, I wouldn't say for charities just to use sms and nothing else it's something that can just be a nice compliment yeah and um, what do you see changing the most in fundraising in the next five to ten years um i think one thing I'm already seeing now, and I think it's just even going to keep changing more, is probably more control on the supporter's point of view and the donor of how they want to give. So in terms of, well, they might not want to go to your website and your appeal page and donate to how you want. They might donate through Facebook, you know, Facebook donate or Instagram donates coming out soon. Or they might use these, these you know, um, they might set up their own crowdfunding campaign and 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 donate. You know that's how they want to donate. You know through that. Um, so it might not be. I think um, charities are going to have to just understand that and almost look at why are some of those campaigns really successful and try and make sure that they're not just trying to shoehorn all their you know shoehorn. Um, how they want people to give in just you know one or two types of ways. All right, so back to uh, Bigfoot fundraising. Yeah. Firstly, where did you get the name from? Uh, it kind of, it's kind of a mix of ways. I guess, yeah, I was uh, spending a while brainstorming names and I pr probably was thinking about a whole bunch of very safe fundraising kind of agency names. But for me, I wanted it to reflect me being um, you know like the you know like the owner and chief consultant of Bigfoot you know it's very much um, you know me being a big part of the brand so um, as you've probably seen when I came in here you know I'm very tall so it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek to, to that but it's also really about Bigfoot we're about you know trying to make a biggest impact for charities you know charities having like the biggest footprint and whatnot and for me I just it was a mix of all these things I thought Bigfoot fundraising um, that's kind of how I came about the name, but I guess really what, what we're all about, yeah, is just making a bigger impact so that charities can have a better, you know, can can uh, achieve their vision of, you know, making the world a better place. So we just focus on what's gonna make a bigger impact for fundraising and what we've really been specializing in is first of all, having a really good plan and strategy is like always the start. Um, digital engagement and, and just engaging your supporters. So whether that's 
from point of acquisition to onboarding um, to all your digital fundraising um, and just really bringing a kind of fresh approach and like innovation to maybe um, existing programs that just need a bit of uh, support. So yeah, it's been it's been a really great seven months so far. Yeah, and it's just been taxpayer time as you mentioned earlier as well. I mean, can you think of any wins that you've had this winter time? So yes, um, yes, I've had I've had some great wins so far. Um, Recently for a tax campaign, I've been working with a children's charity and um, they have an annual appeal that's, you know, really, really big. They were looking to raise uh, over $6 million and we, we were running all the digital fundraising component of this really big integrated campaign. And, you know, we absolutely smashed it. Um, we, we doubled the online income and supporters from the year before. The overall appeal raised about $500,000 more than it did. And, you know, all the online metrics from emails went up, you know, 15% from last year. All the social ads, you know, the website, um, everything looked really good. And yeah, I was really proud of our work on that because it was just a really, you know, um, satisfying cause and campaign and, and it was really great to have the freedom and flexibility to really um, deliver the strategy and plan that we uh, recommended. We were able to just run with what we recommended and it did really well, so. Oh, great. Yeah. What are some recurring problems you see when you go into organizations for the first time does it organ does the problems lie with the organization with the fundraising team no you know it you know i've i've been i guess i've spoken to a few it's been a few common themes that i've seen you know in the short time that i've been a consultant and is maybe there's been a few charities that historically have relied on like one-off events and things like that that have been very labor intensive for the charity and then they're looking to diversify. That's kind of, That's been a bit of a common theme that I've seen. I think maybe the other common theme is charities recognizing that they want to get into digital more and they want to, and they realize that they need to start again diversifying more into digital and they want to put a bit more spend and effort into digital fundraising because they're recognizing that more of their supporters are online. So they're, they're probably the some of the you know some of the things I've seen. And maybe the third would just be um, charities um, recognizing that they could maybe do a better job on how they onboard and how they um, communicate to their existing supporters. So I think there's a lot of charities now recognizing that they really should focus on, you know, not just acquiring donors because it's very expensive to acquire, it's more expensive to acquire. It's really about like, how do we set up really good digital supporter journeys or integrated journeys to really grow the value. So I'm, I'm seeing that as well. And as a consultant, I mean, how do you stay up with what's happening in fundraising? Yeah, I mean, I just read a lot. Um, probably not, you know, when you get really busy with a client and the work, you know, that's your number one focus. But obviously there's there's a lot of time where I have the luxury to, you know, read FMP magazine. I get Google uh, alerts to all the types of things that I want to follow. So I read those articles and um, I also just sign up to a lot of other like agencies like digital agencies and not just fundraising but in the commercial sector as well so i just i'm on you know i get their emails and their updates and you know there's a lot of people that have that have like webinars and things like that um so i just yeah really you know look and scan for things that i want to learn more of and then I, I guess the other area is there's so many free like if it's Facebook, you know, they have online free courses or uh, Google or, you know, all these things as well. So I sometimes, you know, tap in and, and if I want to go deeper into an area, Google Analytics, things like that, there's so much free, there's so much free support out there. Um, yeah, it's, you know, these days it's very easy. And you mentioned the commercial world, which is very interesting. Have you seen something that's being done in the commercial world at the moment that you'd love to bring in and try and fundraising? Um, I think what they, oh, it's not like there's anything, one thing that is totally new that is like not happening in the fundraising area. I just think the commercial world are very good um, at 
like if you've ever i'm sure if you've ever uh gone to book a flight or if you ever wanted maybe you know yeah or if you're trying to get in contact with your bank sometimes you know the engagement on their website you know live chat things like that using bots uh that's something that the commercial world do very well so they really streamline that first point of contact engagement um, and they and then they have like you know the good ones have then triggered journeys to really uh, capture those you know leads. Um, so I think they're very good at that. Um, and they and I think some some I mean there's commercial you know uh, there's really bad you know customer journeys as well. But I think some of the good the good commercial companies will just have a really good uh, like customer journey and it's usually by their emails are just really engaging and you know they're really based on what you do or don't do so i think that's just and that's charities are doing that really great here uh, but i think in general um charities can overall probably look at some of those things and do better so what's next for you where do you see yourself and bigfoot fundraising being being in the next five to ten years yeah look i mean being only seven eight months you know old like for me it's just around um just growing maybe slowly and organically i um i don't see myself in five to ten years being a really big agency i want to stay almost quite niche in, in in those areas i said because that's what excites me and that's where I think, you know, uh, we, we do really good work. And so for me, it's around, um, yeah, staying almost smallish and staying nimble, but then also maybe uh, expanding into partnering with, um, yeah, like I've got some ideas, some, some ideas uh, probably around the donor engagement side of things that I want to develop more. Uh, maybe work on some products that I can develop that then I can I can use across like different charities you know um, uh, for me yeah um, video content and being able to use that you know maybe at scale and things like that there's some exciting areas there that I'm looking at but for me it's just really just um, learning how you know just continuing to grow um making sure that i'm doing good work is the first and foremost thing and just having fun while i do it so you know maybe just having one or two more people max and yeah just having a good life a good work-life balance and really enjoying the work that i do great all right well what's your final piece of advice to inspire and fulfill fundraisers to make a positive impact and create change for a better world oh wow that's a that's a big one <laughs> Um, I would just say, for me, it's really like, you know, really, you know, reflect and think about what really excites you and where you get meaning from. So I'm not really going to say it's the X's and O's in terms of different fundraising things they should do. It's really about just find your like, you know, why you're in the industry, like, and then, and then kind of ask yourself, well, you know, what would truly make me happy? Um, and then go for it. So whether that's, you know, working for your favorite cause and then just, you know, try and get there and work for that charity or whether it's starting your own business or whether, you know, whatever it is, I think what, um, you know, the charity industry can be, you know, we're so passionate about what we do. It can be quite taxing at times. Um, so I think you just, you just want to find your, you know, your kind of, uh, niche in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Jerry Bennett from Bigfoot Fundraising. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. It was fun. Great.